Tonight I'd like to talk about bodhicitta. Um, and I'll be approaching this from the perspective of why we practice, what, what motivation do we actually bring to practice, um, what are we doing this for, and so on. Bodhicitta is generally considered a Mahayana teaching. Um, here in the West, the distinction between Mahayana and Theravada is not always stressed. But in traditional Theravada countries such as Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka, you won't hear the word bodhicitta used very much. And there's probably be a tendency not to recognize or accept it as a Theravada teaching. Later I'll touch on this because um, I think it would be foolish to write, write off bodhicitta and if Theravadins were to reject this um, they might find themselves in an unfortunate place, um, such as compassionlessness. So um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the historical polemics between the various traditions because we don't need to waste our time on that here in the U.S. Um, but I would like to explore what is not traditionally a Theravada teaching and consider how it might be very important and useful for us whether or not it's historically part of the Vipassana or insight tradition. <clears throat> Briefly, I'll <clears throat> define bodhicitta as the aspiration to awaken, or if you prefer, to get enlightened. Um, the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of countless beings. In some classic Mahayana texts, we find this aspiration, this motivation for one's spiritual life given great emphasis, and in some of the Mahayana classics, it's treated with um, a great deal of poetic beauty. I unfortunately do not have that talent, and so this will be a more pedestrian, um, mundane approach. And rather than taking it to poetic heights, um, I'd like to just try to offer some perspectives that might help us understand what we bring to this practice and to reflect on and deepen our own motivation or aspiration. I don't mean this so much as a prescriptive thing. I've, I've heard talks and read some books, you know, you got to have bodhicitta. Um, 
you might already have it, so that may be a waste of time to tell you you need it. But rather than the sort of inherited teaching approach where we get these ancient teachings from our Ajahn's Lamas, Sayadaws, and so on, and then they're sort of passed on over the centuries and they become prescriptive. I prefer the approach that sees these as different ways to inquire into our own reality, into our own experience, our values, our attitudes, our hang-ups, our craziness, and all the other um, stuff that makes up our lives. So the main question I'll, I'm asking tonight is, why we practice, and I don't mean that in the broad abstract we, but the individual personal me and and you. And I m- might need to add that when I say practice, I don't mean the narrow understanding of the practice, which means sitting around and doing whatever you do when you sit. Because... Um, who knows if that's practice or it's pretty hard to know what's going on with other people. I'm not implying it's not practice, but I just don't know. Hopefully, hopefully we each know at least once in a while what's going on. Um, but in addition to the formal sitting or the workshops, retreats, the walking and so on, but also the motive we bring to all the choices that we make each day. Karma, seems to me, is basically about choice. And as we choose what to do in the, all the different situations and interactions we have each day, what's the motivation behind each of those choices? That's practice, too in my mind. So, why do we practice? Both, why do we sit? Why do we come to a talk like this? Why do we go on retreat? Um, Why do we chant or do qigong or whatever other practices we do? And then what about our practice of ethical responsibility? when we make those everyday choices, what about the practice of building healthy, nurturing, compassionate relationships, which goes on throughout each day? What's the motivation we bring to all this? Recently, um, I've been giving more and more attention personally to Bodhicitta as a perspective to bring to to this sort of reflection. And um, so that's why I chose to speak on it tonight. I've been recently starting a, or helping start, or kind of being the main person in starting a new Dharma center just outside Chicago. And that's another step in a long kind of zigzaggy process that's been going on over over the last five, ten years. 
and that involves many changes. Um, until fairly recently, by the way, I was a monk. Now I'm, I'm not quite a monk. I'm not quite sure what I am. But, um, and so a kind of reflection on what I'm doing with my life is something that seems important to me. And all the years that I've been trying to make sense out of Dharma and my life, um, kind of a motive of reflection on our intention or motivation seems seems central. <clears throat> Classically, the framework for Buddhism, especially in what I call early Buddhism, which is kind of well, in my understanding, when we read through the Pali suttas and find the stuff that didn't get rigidified or um, wasn't completely taken over by patriarchy and monastic elitism and things like that, when we, we dig through and find what seems to me to be the, the core teachings that can be found, I believe, in the Pali Suttas before it later got taken over by the um, various forms of Buddhist competition and um, polemics in India, Sri Lanka, and elsewhere. In that early Buddhism, the key frame is about suffering and the end of suffering. Later, the emphasis switched to rebirth and getting out of samsara. Um, but I think in the early days, the Buddha's emphasis was on the universal experience of suffering, dukkha, distress, um, being dissatisfied with life, being emotionally distraught, all the kind of emotional reactivity, or just meaninglessness or not knowing why we're here, what we're doing, um, feeling alone, kind of lost, all the things that tend to trouble us one way or another in our lives. The classic way of presenting that is birth, aging, illness, and death, and then sorrow, grief, lamentation, pain, and despair. But it includes more subtle forms of suffering and dukkha. So that's part of the frame. And then the other part is the end of suffering, sometimes called the end, other times nirodha, which I prefer to translate as quenching, like when you're thirsty, have a nice drink of water, the thirst goes away, the fire's burning, you put it out, and it's cool and safe to be touched. That, that kind of quenching of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion is the quenching of dukkha. Now I wonder how much this is why we're here. On one level, I believe that it's the main reason we're here. That's my opinion, at least. But consciously, for each of us, 
what what brings us to to sit to practice to do all the different things we do now maybe the word suffering doesn't mean a lot for us fortunately dukkha means more than suffering it's more subtle more profound or maybe that language doesn't work for us which is fine but again the question is there some core universal dilemma or challenge of human life that brings us here I ask it in this way because part of bodhicitta it seems to me is recognizing that suffering or lone you know whatever its form say lonely loneliness um, feeling alienated from our society fear at a political system that's lying to us every day um, the insecurity of an economy that doesn't care about us as human beings just wants to suck us dry to um, keep the wheels moving and so on whatever form of suffering is active today when we see beyond it to its universality when we look between beyond our own hurt our own um, depression our own uh, wondering if our life is meaningful or important whatever is going on in our life we look around and see similar things going on in the lives of others and it begins to sink in that it's pretty much universal the details may vary but the core dilemma is universal especially when we investigate our own suffering or that of people around us and as we we ask the question why why do we suffer here we are we want to be happy we want to have a nice life we want to have family friends lovers whatever that we're close to intimate with why why doesn't it work um, we'd like to have democracy why are civil rights eroding all around us we'd like to have a nice sufficient lifestyle <clears throat> why do we have to get ourselves all stressed out making a living etc etc take it whatever direction you like I have a, a bit of a social bent so I sometimes take it that way <coughs> but why are all these things suffering let me give a quickie summary of my understanding of the why <coughs> or the how um, we suffer basically because we we confront the world egoistically we face life and operate in this world through a construct call it ego call it self call it some um, I don't know what other words there are personality structure call it whatever you like but there's this self-centered construct that is working its way through life trying to get what it wants trying to avoid what it doesn't like 
And although it makes efforts to reach out to others, its own inherent structure gets in the way of successfully connecting. We reach out to each other, but then me keeps getting in the way. I want to relate to you in some meaningful way, but it's the me that keeps that from happening in a a deep and sustained way because the me brings in all its petty little worries, its jealousies, its fears, its irritations, its aggressions, and so on. So because of this egoistic approach, there's a lot of reactivity going on. And underlying underlying this is what we call upadana, clinging, grasping, attachment, a habit of the mind to grasp onto some subject as the agent. The one who wants, the one who's going to get, the one who's acting and navigating and relating. There's this habit called grasping or clinging that's latching onto experience in a tight, rigid way of there's got to be a me in here and it can't really figure out what me really is so it keeps grabbing onto different things in a um, futile attempt to control. So it's kind of the controlling mind that latches onto things as me and mine. And classically in Buddhism, this is understood to be derived from craving, a kind of narrowing of the mind that wants things and then develops tunnel vision, pursuing what it wants or avoiding what it doesn't like. And out of that, relating to the world in terms of liking, disliking, wanting, not wanting, we develop a sense of subject and that that the whole egoism thing coagulates around the subject or me. So operating through craving, through clinging, through egoism is what brings suffering. And at the bottom of that, in the Buddha's perspective or analysis, is ignorance. We operate this way because we don't know any better. Perhaps it can be seen as a helpful developmental tool. The human mind evolved certain conceptual abilities like the ability to conceive of ourself, which allowed us to invent agriculture because we could project a me nine months ahead to harvest time and then... Now, you know, we have investment bankers and we have, um, it's somewhat of a development on squirrels hiding um, acorns or whatever. I'm not implying squirrels do the the same egoistic thing we do. But, um, so anyway, that's a quickie analysis of why we suffer. And I want to bring this up Again, the whole issue of what's our motivation. Is this something that grabs our attention? Is this something that we investigate on a regular basis? 
Is this something that we see happening over and over again in our own lives and then we look around and see it, see it more or less happening in the lives of others? So that we see the problem of suffering is also the problem of egoism. And it's not just my problem, it's the human problem. And similarly, craving and clinging and ignorance is a basic human problem. Um, There are other ways to see things. Um, This is the way I've learned to see them. And it seems to me that the more we take this as central and important to what we're doing, the more there's a possibility that our life is operating with an aspiration to find, to discover, to realize liberation or Nibbana or awakening for the benefit of all kinds of beings, not just not just relieving some immediate unpleasant experience or getting out of or around some immediate problem, but the little unpleasantnesses and hurts and stresses and tensions and pains and heartaches seen with both a broader vision and a deeper vision that places the problems, the dilemmas, the conflicts of daily life within the deeper vision that sees it coming from egoism, craving, and ignorance, and then the broader vision that sees this as fundamentally universal. And whether you believe in rebirth or not, every time we see a human birth, we see these same tendencies unfolding and repeated over and over again. What's our response to that? Is the life that each of us has been given something to offer to this this investigation or this, um, what I sometimes call the Buddha project? that is not, an indiv- in my mind at least, not just an individual pursuit. We, we bring our own individuality to it, but there are ways that we also can do it collectively. I've been talking about suffering and its causes. Let me say a little bit more about the other side, which is the quenching of suffering. If suffering is basically rooted in reactivity, well then, what would non-suffering be? Some kind of open calmness? A basically peaceful, free life that's open, sensitive, caring, compassionate? Um, if, if clinging's a cause of the, the turmoil and mess, well, then on the other side, we have letting go. The, For example, dealing with the incredible complexity and uncertainty of our lives without needing to grab on and say, this is me, this is mine, 
without trying to manipulate in a tight, rigid way aspects of our lives so we have a, a false sense of security. Um, for example, getting insurance. I um, recently took out an insurance policy for the first time in my life, which I really don't want to do because I feel it's a major ripoff. <laughs> and, or I'm sure it's a major <laughs> ripoff. But if something happens to me, somebody's going to have a mess on their hands. So, okay, it seems to me it's the responsible thing to do in this society. Got to take out a major, you know, at least get major medical or something. Um, but there's a whole, one reason I'm not too crazy about insurance is it seems to me it's offered if you don't really look into it, it's offered as a kind of security in a very insecure world. And, um, and maybe it does that to some extent. Apologies if any of you are in the insurance business, by the way. <laughs> Feel free to set me straight later. Um, but it seems to me the idea is, you know, we're going to face death and illness and all that. Take out your policy and it'll be taken care of. I hear plenty of stories how it, half the time it doesn't get taken care of in spite of all those beautiful commercials about agents you know, being willing to drop everything to come to your bedside 24-7. <laughs> but I think why it really sells is because it satisfies, on, at least on a deeper level, there are many reasons for it, but on one level, it satisfies the ego that wants to feel safe and secure. I will be, you know, I have some certainty that if anything happens to me, I'll be okay. <laughs> and on one level, that seems to me okay you got to do something to cope with this messed up medical system that we've got and this voracious capitalism we've got. We, we need, it's pretty much a mess in, in my mind, so we have to try to do something. And yet, if we're not careful, we buy into it and think that it's really going to provide safety, certainty, and all that. And I'm just picking up one of many examples of how by clinging to our sense of self, then there's the me. Once you've got a self now, you see it as wandering off into the future and you want it to be safe and happy and well looked after in its old age. And again, there's part of that that's just responsibility, but there's another part where when you grab onto that, then there's worry, there's fear, anxiety and the rest. So letting go of the clinging, opening up to uncertainty, um, uncontrollability, which is, can be very frightening. But it's frightening when we're clinging to certainty, safety, to me, to mine. It's a lot easier when we just um, are willing to deal with the, um, the change. And it's similar with craving, which tends to latch on to what I want 
can we open that up to a kind of where we're we're working on the things in life that are worth doing but in an open flexible way instead of a a narrow craving kind of way Actually, what I'm trying to do here is sketch out some aspects of our practice which, if we stop and think about them, are pretty hard. Letting go of our sense of self, relaxing our identities, all the ideas and beliefs we have about ourselves, our bodies, our names, our intelligence, um, our families, our the Red Sox. I'm a Cubs fan, but uh, talk about a lot of uh, what's the word? Pathetic egoism <laughs> um, and suffering. It's one way Chicagoans and Bostonians can uh, can relate. So, um, anyway, we're going to have a conference on the suffering of baseball. But, Anyway, back to the point is the clinging, the letting go, the craving, finding a replacement for craving, a way to, because it's easy to kind of do the space out thing or the numb out or watch TV or, or drink, which is the cheap, easy, and ineffectual way to deal with craving. Craving creates a lot of stress, so then we... We just kind of numb out, zone out. And that probably happens in meditation. Relax the one extreme and then flop over to the, the extreme of just spacing out or numbing out. Somewhere in the middle is what I call wise aspiration. Finding it is hard. How to keep our mind focused on something important and stay relaxed at the same time not turn it into another ego project. Or this is a insight meditation place. So Vipassana, the looking deeply into our moment-to-moment experience to realize impermanence or to go deeper and start to catch glimpses and to burrow into emptiness, the fact that this body-mind is just, it's a process. We all got the idea, but to get it um, experientially and start to absorb that into the way we live and think and behave. So there's a lot of hard work in this. Throw in the practice of generosity to loosen up our clinging to possessions Trying to lead an ethical life in America, that's tough. Um, I'm, it's a major conundrum, if you ask me, um, because the systems that we're, we, we barely have any choice but to participate in systems that are fundamentally unjust and violent. So trying to lead an ethical life the practice of simplifying, of renunciation, being patient with ourselves, 
with obnoxious people, with traffic, with the list can go on and on and on. So it's my quick summary of ways that what we're biting off, if we're s serious about Dhamma practice, is a lot of hard work. Um, if there are any new people here who thought it was easy and I'm um, depressing you, please forgive me. But um, it can be fun and there's a lot of pleasure and a lot of metta and all that too. <laughs> but, um, but it's still hard work. You know, metta is great when the person's nice, but to do it... <laughs> to do it with your parents or <laughs> at least or um, anyway so th this leads me to the question why do we go through all this why do we go through knee pain half of us might, might not know but um, if we don't it's time to start figuring it out or working it out why do we go through this why what what can give us the strength, the motivation to consistently, nobody's perfect, but in a persevering, regular, more or less daily way, what's going to give us the strength to change our lives, to transform them? Not as yet another self-improvement ego kind of project where there's the me that I don't like and I'm going to change it into the me I do like which is good, but it's um, still dukkha or suffering, but to change our lives on a more fundamental way within a society that doesn't care about this. They're structurally, it, it doesn't care, even though there are lots of people who do care in various ways. So what's... What's our motivation? What is there in our heart? What, what is our vision for our personal potential and the potential of humanity? If, are we willing to think that big? Um, I know a lot of people are afraid to think big because when we do it, it's so depressing. Are we willing to counter what seems so depressing with an equal, equally big, positive, happy vision. For example, that liberation is possible. Freedom from suffering is possible. He healthy relationships is possible. A peaceful society is possible. And then people say, but I can't do that. Or it's not going to happen while George Bush is in office. And it sure ain't going to happen when uh, your John Kerry's in there either. Well, but you never know. Um, but does it matter if it's going to happen next week or in 10 years? That's the ego's demand. That for something to be worth doing, I, I need to see a payoff. That's, that's just the ego thinking, or that's egoistic thinking. Can there be a deeper aspiration such as the way Buddhism has understood the Buddha from the very beginning? Um, here was this person who, if, if you go back and read the early texts of 
just just to keep it kind of you know leave out a lot of the fancy stuff here was this guy who had a nice cushy existence three palaces you know berkshire's cape cod and um florida or whatever for the three seasons um he had a beautiful wife and then a whole harem of dancing girls so um, he had plenty of entertainment, music, whatever, the best food, a nice career ahead of him as a future Raja, and then it was even predicted he would be a universal monarch, you know, the equivalent of being president of the United States. <laughs> um, and he gave it up. He said, um, there ain't no way that I'm going to help people get free of suffering by just, you know, getting caught up in the political economic system and trying to tinker with it. Even as the supposed most powerful person in the world, or then the world was just the Indian subcontinent, at least from their perspective. And so he goes out, and he perfects the most sublime forms of meditation known in India at the time. And the teachers say, well, you're our equal. We'll set you up as a co-teacher, split everything 50-50. <laughs> you know, it's like you get your MBA and you, you go into some big company and you climb the ladder to the top within, within a year and they offer to let you run the company and you walk away because you don't see it as answering the fundamental issue of your life, which is suffering and the end of suffering. Um, whatever kind of worldly happiness or meditative bliss, he saw that is not yet the answer. So he went off for maybe five, six years of hardcore asceticism most of us, um, I don't know, what's an ascetic practice for, for the average American or for the average Vipassana student? Um, I meet people who think, as I, I eat one or two meals a day, and I meet people who think that's asceticism. To me, it's just kind of a habit. Or I used to go barefoot a lot in Thailand and people thought like I was a saint and it was just, I hated shoes. But I don't know what, just I'm asking the question just to help compare. And the Buddha did hardcore fasting. Um, there's not time to go into a lot of detail, but for example, going through periods of time that all he ate were the leavings around cattle pens. I've ever... Any of you been on a farm and seen cattle feed now? Who would like to eat it? <laughs> so there's some, eventually he rejected the hardcore asceticism as not working. But the point I want to bring up is what, what was the motivation of somebody who would undergo that looking for the truth, the Dhamma, the end of suffering. And then, after investing five, six hard years in it, was willing to say, 
it doesn't work and drop it and then move on to something that then looked more promising, which was sitting under a nice tree next to a river, breathing in and out, calming the mind, and then uh, things happened, he became the Buddha. And then after that, he was tempted to just hang out under the trees, experiencing the so-called bliss of liberation. And instead, he went and found students, which are a real pain in the neck. Um, those of you who are a student of Larry Narayan or somebody around here, if you didn't figure it out, <laughs> students are demanding. They bug you for advice and never follow it. Um, they gossip about you all the time, etc., etc. And the Buddha had some really stupid students, including... Including me, but but his cousin um, Devadatta tried to kill him, etc., etc. So he gave up his own personal bliss to carry on this project, what I've called the Buddha Project, or which is motivated by Bodhicitta, to use all his capacities to do whatever he could to help as many beings as possible be liberated from greed, hatred, delusion, and suffering. And then he set up what structures made sense at the time so that the teaching, the knowledge, the practices could, could carry on. And here we are 2,547 years later as beneficiaries of that. Whether some of the forms are still appropriate to our time is a big question. How we're going to integrate it in our confused culture is a big question. But here we are still benefiting from that. And it wasn't just the Buddha, all the people who put time and energy into it, including our teachers. Or I was thinking... Um, I don't know all the details of how CIMC came to be, but I once um, hung out with Larry at Carberry's and heard some of the story of how he stopped teaching at Harvard and just committed himself to teaching meditation around town. And it wasn't easy. And he didn't get a whole lot of support. And he was probably laughed at by people at, at Harvard. Here he, I guess he had a pretty good position. He gave it up. And what did he do? He's just some, you know, worthless meditation teacher with three or four students. And then now we've got this wonderful place to meet in and practice and so on. So what, with those kind of things as for comparison and reflection... What do we bring to this practice? Um, how committed are we to ending suffering? Starting with our own. How committed are we to changing our lives so that other beings won't suffer? Our family, our friends, um, 
I like to think, what would it be like if Manhattan and the Boston banking industry and Silicon Valley and the Chicago Democratic Party, and which is pretty corrupt, and all those other similar things around this country, what if those people weren't suffering so much? What if Rumsfeld and Cheney and Ashcroft and Kerry and McCain and Dean, what if those guys and the women, you know, the Hillarys, weren't suffering so much? What if um, average Americans weren't suffering? Would they elect such leaders? Um, just to think of it in those terms. And are we, what are we willing to give in terms of our own lives, our own practices to, to the end of suffering? If any of this is making sense, that bodhicitta, the aspiration to dedicate one's life to the practice of dharma for the sake of liberation or for the sake of awakening so that countless beings can be liberated then there's the question how do we how do we keep this going in our lives um, time is short for let me just say briefly um, the kind of questions I'm trying to raise tonight, raise them in your own ways, but to bring this sort of reflection to our daily sittings and other Dhamma practices we do, or when we wake up in the morning, to ask ourselves and spend a little time, what am I waking up for? Um, I know in my own case, if I don't ask these questions over and over again, I fall back on habit. And my habit, uh, some of the texts on bodhicitta talk about when you've developed it into a habit. But until that's the habit, we all know what our, our habits are. <laughs> and most of them aren't for the sake of the liberation of countless beings. <laughs> so... And another part of it is to, again, um, I'm not really familiar with most of you, so is reflecting on suffering and its universality. Is that a regular thing we do? Is that something we consider each day? Um, and I don't mean, you know, walking down the street and judging people, oh, he's suffering and she's suffering. But just recognizing that we know that as our practice continues and we kind of get our stuff together, we're fairly balanced, fairly happy human beings, and yet we still suffer. And so if that's going on, well, it's probably going on with lots of other people too. So it seems to me to go along with our Dhamma practice, if we w wish to have both a deep and a vast motivation, 
uh, consistent inquiry into suffering and its universality. One way I like to understand that is so that the motivation most of us start with, which is our own problems, our own pain, our own stress, in other words, my dukkha, that the my part kind of fades. And then our motivation is just to find a response to suffering, to dukkha, to stress and heartache, alienation, boredom, and all that, where we, the my fades away because we've seen that it's not really mine. It's, it's ours, or it's, it's not just ours, it's human. It's the core, core dilemma if you like, the core mission. And finally, if um, you'll allow me, at some point we probably need to recognize that otherwise it just won't work. <laughs> um, I think the debates that sometimes occur between um, sort of the rigid Orthodox Theravadan mentality and the kind of uh, what I consider arrogant Mahayana mentality. I don't mean all Mahayanas are all Theravadins, but there are certain mentalities that are kind of polemical. And, you know, Theravada is the, the real Buddhism, and those Mahayanas are... I've heard that, by the way, many times in Thailand, where Mahayana Buddhism has wandered off. And I've been with Mahayana Buddhists who feel sorry for me because I'm a Hinayanist. And it seems to me the way to get out of that kind of um, sectarian stupidity is to see that as long as we're trying to deal with my suffering, I'm going to suffer. As long as there's my suffering, there's a me to suffer, and it's going to suffer because that's the nature of me and mine. And so something like bodhicitta by whatever name is absolutely crucial to take us beyond the, the deeper causes of suffering. And so there's no liberation for me anyway. There's just liberation from me. And I don't mean out-of-the-body experiences or dying and not getting reborn, but just being free of me and mine. So, um, I didn't get the signal, but I think this is a good time to close. And so, um, we'll take a quick break. And those of you who have other things to do tonight are free to go. And those who'd like to stick around for some question, rebuttal, um, whatever, we've got another 20, 25 minutes. So those who are leaving, thanks for coming. And those who are staying, um, just jump right in whenever you like. Uh-huh. So you're right on. I like to refer to it as 
organized extortion. <coughs> Oh, it's open. Oh, great. It's just not, we're not advertising much. Okay. Is it, you'd like going to be an inquiring mind type of thing as a place to, to practice? Yeah, we're small now, but we, we do have room for guests. So, there's a website. So just do a Google for Liberation Park. Okay. And you'll find us. Okay. Sure. You're welcome. Um, as you were speaking, I was noticing some of my own you know, reactions, responses. A couple of, uh, I was, I was, uh, some of what you were saying was helping me to put uh, a couple of pretty powerful experiences for me. Uh, in perspective over the past couple of days, experiences over the past couple of days. Uh, one was um, on Monday morning. I was suffering emotionally. I was really hooked. I was seeing that I was suffering, but I, I couldn't get out of it. You know, I was, everything was going wrong, and I was disturbed. But I, I had made a commitment to go and see someone in the hospital who was dying <coughs> and spend some time with him and try to help out there. And, uh, and so I, I, I was sorry I had to do that. I, I you know, I, I mean, I, I woke up. Sorry I'm, for yourself? Yeah, or? yeah, right. I, I was trying to take care of my stuff so I could get out of my suffering, you know, and, and resolve it and try to deal with it better and mm -hmm. get my day going better. And now I had this thing in the middle of the day where, and I had things to do in the evening. I had to be somewhere, you know. So, uh... When I came out of the hospital, I mean, I had a, a rather meaningful interaction with this person. <clears throat> when I came out of the hospital, <clears throat> I, was, I had to be somewhere that I really wanted to be. My car wouldn't stop. No problem. You know, it didn't bother me. I went and took care of that, got a jump start, headed off in the direction of where I wanted to go, stopped for dinner before going there, came out, my car wouldn't stop. No problem, you know. I didn't get to where I wanted to go. Ended up getting towed, and I had to take a train back home, and so on. But somehow, through all of this, my whole, you know, my whole state, you know, had it was so different from the morning. Yeah. So what changed? Well, being with this fellow, you know, who was dying, kind of really, uh, I, I was. I was grateful, you know, for being able to handle these problems, for having, you know, you know, I was... Uh, right. Well, obviously something shifted yeah. by visiting the guy in the hospital. Right. What, these are great things to reflect on. What changed in you? There's the outer situation that helped trigger it, but what shifted in you? 
of the morning, for example, was, you know, so petty, you know, compared to what he was going through. Right, right. And then having things continue to go wrong, you know, for me, compared to what he was going through, you know, uh, was, you know, minuscule. Right. So to there's a part of it, and there was another part, but I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure how to Right. Well, you don't have to put it all in words now, but it's something to look into because the more we understand how the, those shifts can happen all by themselves, but we can learn a lot from it. And I believe the more we see those shifts, the more we can follow them when opportunities arise. Because you can't choose it in an egoistic way, but you can kind of choose... Like notice, somewhere you start paying more attention to the guy who is dying than your own stuff. So where you put your attention, what you focus on, changes your your inner world. And perhaps you were caring more about him and his suffering than your relatively less severe stuff. Well, it's important not to completely um, disregard our own problems. Some of those do need attention. But to put them in perspective. Well, that's it. I was continuing to have problems, but it wasn't affecting me in, you know, at all in the same way as it had been. Can I just share one other quick thing? Sure. I was in the same hospital today at, at, in the cafeteria there. It was very busy. And this thought just struck me. These people, all these people I was seeing, these people think they're as important as me. All of these people think they're as important as me. And as you were speaking tonight, I, I became aware of what had preceded that, which was I was walking through this, I, as I often do, it's kind of sizing people up, you know, like who's, you know, who's smart, who is it, who's, you know, who's, what class are they, all kinds of stuff. You know? Who's more important, less yeah, important? Yeah. Yeah, so you're an ordinary American male, kind of. I don't know if women do that, too. Okay, so women don't tell the truth. Are you going to tell the truth now? I'll try. Okay. So I, I, I 
Well, it's partly what we pay attention to and how. As a therapist, you got to pay attention to the suffering of your clients, but um, you can't. There's a there's a passage somewhere where the Buddha speaks of. Um, I'm going to stretch this, but it kind of fits. That those who see the arising of things but not their ending tend towards eternalism. And those who see the ending of things but not the beginning tend to nihilism. If you apply that to suffering, those who see the arising of suffering but don't pay attention long enough to see it end, suffering starts to look eternal. A Catholic friend of mine who's a meditation teacher once used a similar thing to describe eternal hell. He said the um, kind of popular notion of eternity is it's time that goes on forever. But he said that's not really what it means. It's when you're experiencing pain and you project it into time where and you're so caught up in it you don't see it ending. You just see it. That's when it's overwhelming. So you you learn a lot of what meditation is is just learning how to shift attention. So for example with clients the ones that are having a lot of trouble sh- remember the clients who've made progress or you know I, I assume you do it anyway but sometimes we forget find the things worth rejoicing about in in the people so balance out the picture a little bit and then similarly with uh, the world there's um, you know it's easy to beat up on America find find the good things and there are plenty of good people and we've got like um, like it's kind of a conundrum we have a great public library system largely funded by people like Carnegie you know, so it's kind of, here was this vicious robber baron, and then he helped fund what's a pretty wonderful thing that's still available to a lot of people, including lower income. So, so again, the main thing is learning to see how our attention gets stuck. Yeah. And... There's something in our particular ego structure that helps us see why it gets stuck where it gets stuck. And then learning to relax and shift what we pay attention to. That's what a lot of practice is, just shifting our attention. Well, it's causing despair. It's not causing compassion. <clears throat> so, one, and I don't mean this critically, but 
when that happens in us, it's because there's the me that's, <laughs> oh shit, you know, another problem. So there's, it's an egoistic fear, despair, depression, whatever. It's an egoistic response to suffering. Inst- compassion is the non-egoistic response that naturally seeks to do what it can. And an important, in the Brahma Viharas, the fourth is upeka, which one of the meanings of equanimity is when there's nothing you can do, you can just watch with loving kindness until there's something you can do. So there's a, there's a level of clarity, acceptance, but still the, the loving kindness where, you know, often when there are situations that are, seem hopeless, then we want to forget about them because we've created an attitude of hopelessness. That's not equanimity, that's apathy. Equanimity can see a painful situation and be patient. I think of the attack as one of them. Um, the strangest things have been happening to me lately, and I, I don't know um, with my practice, and like wonderful things have been happening, and I don't really feel like I understand how they're happening, and I don't know if I should be understanding how they're happening. Um, for example, I'm, I'm a therapist also, and about a year ago I was working with a group of um, young adults with schizophrenia, and I couldn't, I was similar to the, the, the woman in the back that was full of despair, and I, I just saw the whole situation, this whole lives as being sort of hopeless and helpless, and I ended up... Um, leaving that job and I didn't know if I could continue to be a therapist if I could continue to be a therapist and then I've just been practicing throughout the year practicing on letting go and letting go and I realized that the reason I couldn't deal with work with them was because I, I wanted to be able to control the the happenings of their lives. Like I, I was doing things in the day but I wanted it I wanted to be in control of where they would end up if I was trying to get them a part-time job or and thinking, is it going to work out or is it not going to work out? So it was stopping me in the moment. And and now, over the past um, couple of weeks, I went into my own business and I work with with, um, four um, severely disabled children. And their situations are almost more despairing than the, the situations I was working with the young adults. But I don't see them as that at all. And people have been saying to me, how do you do this work? And like one of the little boys has um, epilepsy that is severe, uncontrolled. He has to wear a helmet. He, he falls all over the place all the time. And um, he can eat and he can walk, but that's all he can do. He can have no contact at all. And um, I work with him and I try to do some music therapy and stuff like that. And people, they told me that so many therapists put stakes, they couldn't make any contact, but I don't feel any of the despair anymore in him. Like, I, 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 I just see this, like, beauty in him. And it, it's like, it just, it, I don't 
know if I should be understanding why this is happening to me because I know it could help me to, to in this work and to help others to, to be able to understand it. And this other little boy, he had, he's 11 years old and he's having all these phobias. He's, he's on this um, borderline schizophrenic form, um, autistic mm -hmm. post-developmental delay, and the father just walked out. You don't need to go into all the details. Yeah, and the, 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 the last night I was with him, and I guess he's petrified of thunderstorms, and I didn't know that, but the, during the thunderstorms, um, I, I said, oh, it's a thunderstorm, I love thunderstorms, and so he went and shut off all the lights, and we sat in the kitchen, with all the lights off, and just listened to the thunder and the lightning, and thought it was great, and his mother came home, and I told him what happened, and she said, she said, Trisha, he's petrified of thunderstorms, she said, he would, I, I can't believe you did that with you, and I, so, like, these weird things are happening where I feel this sort of connection with people, and I don't think it's anything wonderful, but I, I don't know if I should be, should be understanding what is happening so I can sort of hold on to it in some way, because I don't feel like I'm going to be able to. Well, my understanding of practice is that, well, my approach to Buddhism is we, we meditate, we practice mindfulness, we also study. And each spiritual tradition has certain maps, and Buddhism has quite rich maps of the inner world. And we can also get some useful stuff from certain forms of psychology and whatever. So I have learned certain descriptive maps none of which can describe everything. <clears throat> but they allow what seems to me some useful understanding of things like what you're talking about. And it seems to me the purpose of that is to learn by understanding some of what happened, you can keep it going because... I hear plenty of stories where there's some kind of spontaneous, you don't quite know how it happened, things are going really great, and then a year or two later something falls apart, and it seems to me the more you understood what happened, you can't control the process, but an important part of it is what you're doing, your own attitude, and your own attitude can be connected with things like meditation how you take care of your body, diet. So the more we notice things that are happening that are connected, we may not understand the whole thing, <clears throat> but it gives us some insight in what we can do to practice. I have a friend who's prone to severe depression, but she's finally realized if she gets out and walks, her depression goes down a lot a lot better than staying in bed and taking meds. She still takes meds, but she walks. And, and she finally learned that. It took a while, and some friends kind of hammering it home because it, it was her experience, but she didn't stop and really look at her own experience to get the lesson. So, yeah. so I think part of our practice involves enough study to have useful maps about the inner world and how change takes place. And then we use those maps to reflect on our own experience.
Thanks. Well, some people follow precepts out of fear of hell, to put it crudely. Or I, I know a lot of monks who follow them out of um, pressure, the expectation of lay people. Once, once you get a priestly caste that's been institutionalized, they don't always know why they're there. <laughs> and there can be so there are plenty of reasons for following precepts that are not bodhicitta. So, um, and we all bring our own psychological complexity, including our neuroses, to the way we practice. And so, one reason I think for reflecting on bodhicitta is to check what is the motivation you bring to your your ethical practice and. You know, maybe maybe you do have a really healthy approach to it. But I, I know in my own case, each day can be a little different. And there are days I, um, I have a kind of rule-oriented neurosis. And there are days that that's strong and other days when that's pretty gentle. And when I'm following rules, that's not really a healthy approach to to precepts. So. This, I think, will be the last one. It's almost nine. Nice, nice to see you again. Hi. Um, I was wondering, um, for one thing, um, how much uh, Venerable Buddha Dasa talked about bodhicitta. And I'm, I'd also like if you would comment just a little bit as to how you um, how you handle you work a lot with people who have social act, action kinds of agendas, and I wonder how you work with with their um, kind of impatience or stridency and need to have it need to have uh, the outer world corrected <laughs> uh, pronto. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I'm pretty sure Ajahn Buddhadasa occasionally used the word bodhicitta, but not much. But his approach to talking about the Buddha and talking about Dhamma, I think, included the... Like, traditionally, Theravada Buddhism doesn't use the word. But I believe if we read, especially the account of the Buddha himself, but also many of these supposed Arahant disciples you see much more than just a narrow concern with one's own liberation. 
And um, so that, I think, he pointed to a lot. And including that it's not fundamentally about being Theravada Mahayana, um, monastic, lay, those, those distinctions are always secondary. As far as activists, um, kind of depends where they're at. I've been, I've worked with groups, mainly in Asia, where there were pretty hardcore Marxists who thought religion was a complete waste of time. You know, the stereotypic opiate of the masses thing. Um, one of the ways I and a Catholic priest who was involved, we worked a lot together. What we tried to do was honor the way that good activists really care about people. They're the doctrinaire activists who are just pissed off or whatever. But so we pointed out some of the the Marxists we knew who, and we would acknowledge that what they were doing is something we would call spiritual. Their self-sacrifice, they're putting the needs of others first, their gentleness, their commitment was superior to a lot of overtly religious people. So one thing we would do would frame it that way to try to create some common ground that because there's they were so you they were used to and expecting a judgmental religious, you know, we're religious, we have the truth. You you political types are barking up the wrong tree and so on. Second, acknowledging the way that institutionally religion has sold out and taken the aside of oppressive struct social structures over and over again. Um, so honesty. And to try to create some room for, for dialogue. Other activists are showing interest because they've seen the that their lives are out of balance. They've you know some in this is somewhat similar to people who've put a lot of energy into career and then found out it didn't make them as happy as as, as it was supposed to be. And so activists who are getting burned out, stressed out, frustrated, and are looking for for more more balance and harmony. And then for them, I think the key thing is to present Dharma in a way that it's not separated from society, which is a pretty traditional dualistic approach. And Buddhism's got plenty of it. The whole, you know, if you read traditional stuff, whether Theravada, Mahayana, Tibetan, whatever, leaving the world. And it's very easy then to say people who are involved with the world are are deluded. But then what the traditional religious types don't see is all their involvement with their religious structures is equally worldly. But they there's a tendency not to see that. So if we can provide a non-dualistic um, if we can present Dhamma in a non-dualistic way that's not rejecting the world, then 
Um, then usually a fair amount of humor and teasing because... So that's a few things that come to mind. Okay, It's nine o'clock. I believe that's official closing time. Is is that correct? Okay, it's flexible. Shall we close or any urgent business other than liberation? Okay. Thanks for coming out and Hope the Cubs meet the Red Sox in the World Series. <laughs> or the White Sox. But if the White Sox don't make it, then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.